Virginia Schutte. And I'm Bethan Gehrman Merkel, and this is Meteor, the honest podcast about science communication with impact. Two years ago, we launched this podcast. We needed an advanced user space, and we wanted to muse and chat with all of you. And oh, the world feels different today. So this season, we're taking a look at the systems of SciComm, what we love, what we're working to change, and how trying to change things through science communication shapes the work that we do and our rants. Applications are now open for SciComm STEP. STEP stands for Sparking Transitions for Experienced Professionals. It's a professional development program we made for beyond beginner science communicators. More information is on our website. Apply today and tell your friends. If you want to know more, follow us on social media or get on our email list. And we also have way too many emails, so don't worry. We will only send you podcasts and program updates. This episode, we are talking about a frustrating reality and how we try to combat it. We feel like dealing thoroughly enough with a system to rise through the ranks within it to positions of power can prevent us from changing that system. Right. And to say that in a soundbite, the system makes us too busy to change it. But I feel like that's so, I, I know it's such a nice soundbite, but I want all my words <laughs> because I feel like it's not, it's not just busyness. There are like a couple of realities to the whole system thing that make it really hard for you, like when you're good at moving through the system that make it hard for you to change the thing you just went through. Um, so I, f- I feel like the first thing is that systems are built to resist change. I, is this a universal truth? Like you, if you build a system robust enough to exist through time, then it's, it's gonna be self-perpetuating. It's gonna be built to last, which means it's gonna be really hard to change it. So like the system will resist change. Yeah. I both agree with you and want to like nitpick that a little bit. And agree with me. (laughs) I both agree and agree. (laughs) Yes. And agree. (laughs) So the first thing that you saying that makes me think about is the strategic planning process at our university last year that I helped lead. And one of the things that we had in mind as we built a process that people could contribute to in a genuine and meaningful way, not some hire an outside consultant who just thinks we're broken and needs to fix us, (laughs) which is how it's gone for a while. We knew that part of what we had to build was a process that could withstand any of us leaving. Oh, And I think you and I have talked about this in the past even that, you know, you hear this phrase, the university can't love you or the company can't love you back. Right. And I've especially heard Tressie McMillan-Cottom say this on so many podcasts because I listened to everything she did. (laughs) And the the point was that the system has to be able to persist after us. Right. So I agree with you there. And also... It drives me up the wall. <laughs> so I'm going to give you another example yes, of why please. 
I agree and I don't want to agree. <laughs> and that is that I'm on round two of a declined, we're not calling this thing failed, grant proposal. And the idea here is to really shake some things up in how people teach science communication in undergraduate biology settings. First time around on this grant, we did what everybody does for this grant and we proposed basically curriculum support and interventions and stuff like that. And it got really high reviews, but wasn't accepted. And part of why was because we had a team full of women and at least one of the reviewers thought we had no idea how much work we were signing up for. That was fun. Mm -hmm. And then we got to work on revising it to submit again and realized that we did not want to give people more work at the individual level when the system was what was preventing them from doing that work at all. Mm. So we completely overhauled the grant and we framed it up as people need help to make the kind of change happen in their professional environments so that they are allowed to teach these classes in the first place, so that they get credit for doing this kind of work, so that it is valued, and not just all extra volunteer work on top of everything else that they do. And we loved this grant, and I think it is one of the best things I have ever written, and the reviewers hated it. <laughs> I was gonna say, but it's a, it's a rejected currently, not failed, they <laughs> hated oh. it. <laughs> so yes, systems resist change. So there was a mechanism in place for you to work within the system and to get money to do it, but there's not a mechanism in place for you to change the thing that made the funding mechanism exist in the first place. Yeah. I can see how, but, but I can see how just like instinctively somebody comes to you and says, hey, I'm going to build this thing. It's going to be good enough so that I can skedaddle if I want to, year or two. I can see how that automatically like if I'm the person who's gonna like be in charge of, I don't know, admin or any capacity of the system you're building, I'd be like, but what? <laughs> but, but, but what you're saying from the like, from the leadership side is like, well, yeah, if you wanna build a thing, build it. And then, I don't know, do you wanna build another thing? Do you wanna like make that thing version too? Like, like I, I totally get the exit, like building in the exit strategy, but then I can see how you saying it out loud makes people real nervous in, especially in a machine like a university. Yeah. And, and yes, in the strategic planning environment, we have to build an organization that's robust enough that people can retire mm -hmm. or decide to take another job, etc. And I would hope that those things are happening under positive circumstances. We all know that it's way more complicated than that. But in the case of trying to make it so that people can actually be allowed to teach a science communication class in a biology context and get credit for that and their teaching load and have it meaningfully contribute towards annual reviews, that's not about an exit strategy. The genuine resistance there that I, I put a lot of the blame here on changes work and systems change makes everybody work, not mm -hmm. just the people that are saying they're going to do the project. Mm -hmm. And I really think a lot of the inertia is reviewers or administrators being like, I'm already maxed, or I don't value this. I don't want to have to do work. 
I don't want you doing this because it will make more work. Well, I, I think there's I'm also... a little cranky about it. <laughs> I was going to say, there's also a more generous <laughs> interpretation here, <laughs> which is that if people are expecting you to propose a project that works within the system and you hit them with, let's change the system, they may be like, Oh, I'm not prepared for what are you saying? Fair. I, Fair. So it's like I'm thinking about a rubric and, and people are applying this rubric consistently across and then you come in with something that doesn't fit the rubric and they're like, error does not compute. And, and it, it, so like if we wanted to be less cranky, you don't have to join me on this journey. You can be cranky there. That's cool. I'm going to be <laughs> cranky. You got the rubric brilliantly. But, but I think it's just another way that systems resist change. It's like, so then who would review your thing? Who would have funding? And be ready to consider like, oh yeah, like like what evaluation mechanisms are built into the system to be like, hey, we're a university. What is the point of this whatever it is? Like this system, this program, this whatever. Like, I, I feel like who's checking in on like this measures of success and all that. We talk so much about evaluating our psychom projects, but who's evaluating the systems and then what accountability is there and I'm going to breeze right on past None. the rhetorical yep. <laughs> there it is. we're moving right on so I, I think the other way that systems can resist <laughs> I'm just gonna we're not gonna wallow in that pit there I think I think there's another way <laughs> I know you're laughing <laughs> so hard I think there's another way that systems resist change and I'm thinking about a system set up to let people exit a system set up to let people voice their like hey let's talk about the system though it feels like some kind of democratic, like multiple people contributing to how this works. But then if you run the things by committee, then you, it's possible, I'm not saying it always happens, but it's possible then that you get bogged down in like the logistics of running a thing by committee. Um, you know, like how many people get to vote? What if they're not all there? So I, I feel like another way that systems resist change is, you know, on a SciComm project, there's a lead and that person has a role and they do the things in that role. But once and that's you get efficient. To, yes. Once you get to the size of systems, so many people need to weigh in and sometimes fairly that it can be just logistically tough to move things forward that are controversial or difficult, but often pushing into new spaces, trying new things, you know, innovating, inventing. So it, it seems like just the logistical load of that would make it hard to change a system. Yes. And, and I don't think we need to wallow in this hole either, <laughs> but we can at least acknowledge that unilateral leadership is not always a good thing. So we're not exactly advocating for that, but we are recognizing that group work has its downsides. <laughs> and, and yet, maybe as our nice upshot to, to move forward with, one of the things that can be really important about having lots of people on board for something or even the a handful of people is that you can say one really important thing, which is I am not the only person who thinks this change needs to happen. Yes, that's definitely power in, in group voices. I agree with that. So I think another way that <laughs> this frustrating reality has come to be is that if you are good enough to navigate through the system and like make things happen, people recognize that and they ask you to perform the navigation function mm. for them or for their projects. Yes. And, and I know that when you say good enough, you don't mean merit and you don't mean assimilated and you don't mm. mean so many of the things, right? But, but if, you get, if you get to the level in your career where we are right now, 
neither one of us has like giant checkbooks to flip open and write the kinds of checks that make stuff happen, but we do have the capacity to navigate in certain kinds of spaces that can open doors for other people or at least get people to listen to our ideas. And that's a level of facility and power and access inside the system that can make people remember our names when they want grunt work <laughs> or when they want a really important thing done that we know is just gonna keep us busy. It's gonna sidetrack us from the systems change work that we're actually trying to do, even if it really matters. And I'll give you a particular example. For me, this comes up most often around the question of who do students or junior colleagues go to for protection and mentorship? And then how much friction does that put on my available time to be working on the systems change stuff that would hopefully make it so they don't need so much protection and they are getting way better mentorship. But if I do that one-on-one, -on -one, nothing else ever changes. I'm thinking about another easy example, and we hear this all the time with DEI work. You know, people of marginalized identities, people are like, oh, you're doing great work to make things better from the DEI perspective, and would you be on this panel and talk about that? And it's like, nah, you should be on the panel and talk about science or, or whatever it is. Like you should do your job and not that job. And you, you shouldn't constantly be asked. And, and again, I want to recognize my own privilege. I'm a privileged white lady. This is not what happens to me as often as probably some of y'all listening. But I want to own that like that's a very real example. If, if you are good at the DEI stuff, people ask you to do the DEI stuff, even though that may not be your job. Yep. And why are you doing that? You're doing that because another attribute of this whole thing is that <laughs> the system sucks so much, you can't stand to operate inside it the way that it is. That is the whole point of talking about systems change. It's like, I don't think we're trying to change perfect systems. So like... Nothing about it is perfect. <laughs> right. And so then, then there are these like possibly not, not existential in a sort of abstract I'm a philosopher, sorry, philosophers kind of way, but more of a like when you're in a system that you hate or that is actively making you unsafe and unwell or an opportunity lies inside of a system that is has those attributes, then what? We're not at quite that level of risk. Yeah. Right? I get deeply frustrated by all kinds of things and I know that stuff could get run better, but that is not the same yeah. as... I can't be in this state anymore. Correct. Like state in the United States. State. Yes. To be clear, <laughs> what we were talking about. But I think you don't have to be that at risk to run into this issue either. So like what if someone's like, we'll give you, I don't know, $50,000 to run that program that you've really been dreaming about forever and the only requirement is that you have to use our facility to do it and that facility is not ADA accessible or it's not... I don't know, something. Like, if that's one of your non-negotiable values that you work from a place of equity that anyone can access, and they say, well, fund the whole program, but some people can't access it, or you're required to do this one thing that compromises your values, like, oh man, how do you decide? Is the good of running the program, like, what if you run the program and then somebody else funds it because they see how great it is and what your need is? Or, or, or do you not? Because then what if somebody who would come to your program if it were, you know, completely the way you wanted it to be, sees you 
not doing it that way and they decide that you are not like committed to, to welcoming them in, uh, th uh, that is, I mean, I'm not in that situation. If you want to offer me $50,000 with a caveat, feel free. <laughs> and then I'll and tell then you what we, I'll do. Then we'll decide but, if we right. can handle your constraint or not. But I, that just feels like you don't need, you know, you don't need to be in an extreme case to have to figure out, like, how much of this imperfect system can you stand? Yes. And we are not going to answer that for you today. Nope. <laughs> That's your job. <laughs> Small commercial. We have run programs in the recent past that helped people articulate for themselves how they could decide situations like that. We have plans to offer you programs like that. But really what this is coming down to here is how you, how we, how each of us individually navigates what we perceive to be our own limits of responsibility. How we fit in current systems, how we try to change those systems, whether we flip the bird to the system and do something outside of it <laughs> to the best of our ability. This week, I am unavailable to build an empire. You'll have to do it yourself. Right. <laughs> and of course, walking away from that has its own whole pile of baggage. Yeah, so I know we were talking about baggage with, you were talking about to a friend about like saying yes, saying no, joining a whole program that they would be starting, building, leading with someone else with a caveat. So I know we've been talking about baggage and when you decide. And, and I think, you know, we talked a lot last season about how and when to say no, how to decide, that kind of thing. But I think one thing we didn't talk about is that for for me, when I, when I don't, when I like compromise on my values, it's often... Or when I consider compromising on my values, it's often because I'm afraid of a perceived loss. Like there's this threat of losing something. So someone who has power in a space I'd like to be in uh, is like, you know, do this for me. And I'm like, well, if I say no, are you going to, you know, can you Black take away jobs from me? Yeah, exactly. So there's this perceived loss if I say no. But I think the other way to look at that is to flip it and say, what's the like what's what's the perceived gain so if i say no to this person and they do blacklist me would someone else know that i had said no would they like could i bond with them over standing up for values that are more important to me than having this person's approval um if somebody's going to suck me into a program that's going to eat away at my time is the perceived is the potential gain then that i would have more control and then in a year or two when I'm more established, I could build a program the way I want it to be. Uh -huh. So maybe a little later, but like, it's the way I want it to be. So, so I think that's, that's the thing that Bethann and I have been talking about lately is instead of thinking of the threat of loss, what's the gain? Can yeah. you imagine what that might be like? So over to you listeners. Tell us, what would you be building if you were not too busy? And what would you cut or stop doing to make that space? You've been listening to Meteor, the honest podcast about science communication with impact. To join this conversation, tell us what you think about empires and boundaries and busyness. <laughs> I have no sound check for busyness. <laughs> you can do that on social media or you can submit a note on our website, meteorpsychom.org. Talk soon.